The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. The title tonight is that Jesus gives life. And, um, you know, one of the things I would ask you to consider as we get into Mark uh, chapter 8, just the very, very end uh, of the gospel itself, is that Jesus gives life. And, And what I mean by that is that right now Jesus is building, he is shaping, he is forming your life. He is committed to building your life. And, 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 and although I, I hope I don't lose you on this, he's not building a resume. You know, sometimes when we're uh, thinking about looking for employment, we'll, we'll, we'll either create or have somebody help us create uh, a document that represents our work experience. Uh, maybe some previous supervisors who can attest to the fact that, you know, we were good workers, that we were capable, that, that we were able to carry out our responsibilities. Maybe our educational background or our training background would be included in there. Um, it's it's kind of your work history. Jesus isn't building your resume. And this is where it gets a little morbid, but I want you to think about it. What Jesus is building in your life and my life is our eulogy. There are many times from this pulpit during a memorial service when we're remembering somebody and, and people from the congregation will come up and they'll say, you know, when, 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 jo- when I met Joe, he gave me a chance. He was kind to me. Or, or I watched from a distance, I watched Joe go through a hard time and I saw godly character in his life. When, when I talk about Jesus giving life to you and to me. He's building something in us. He's forming, he's shaping something in us. And the means of his work in your life and my life certainly is the Holy Spirit, but it is also the cross of Christ. We're going to talk about that extensively tonight. That it is through the message, it is through the reality of the cross of Jesus that we are being changed and transformed. And and, and although we're going to have good times and although we're going to have difficulties or trials, What is being formed in you will be rewarded one day when you stand before God. You're going to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, because of the work that Jesus Christ for sure is doing in you right now. Our challenges have a beginning and an end. And that's not helpful if you're in the middle of it, but I'm telling you, they have a beginning and an end. But the work that takes place in your heart and your life, the character and the nature that's developed by God, will last for all of eternity. And even though you can't see it right now, it will be rewarded. God will give you a reward for the work that he's accomplished in you. I think that's one of the reasons when we read in the uh, pages of Revelation that they take their crowns off and they place them at the feet of Jesus, acknowledging that it was what he did in their lives. And if you're the kind of Christian, if you're the kind of Christian that measures and compares yourself, I want you to think about this. God doesn't measure you or compare you to anybody else. Please consider not doing that. I feel like it's, it's, it's contradictory. So when I talk a little bit about tonight uh, in, in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38, is that three times in Mark's gospel, we're told that Jesus, by Jesus, we're told that he was going to Jerusalem. This was his destination. This would be the conclusion of his ministry, that he would go to Jerusalem, that he would be betrayed to his enemies. Three times Mark tells us this. 
that he would be crucified, that he would die, and that he would raise on the third day. And, and, and the truth and the reality of that is what changes you and I. This evening, we're going to consider the first of these three mentions by Jesus. I want to read you the other two passages, which, as I said, are found in the Gospel of Mark. So from Mark chapter 9, verse 31, it says, And he began to teach or explain to them that the Son of Man, that's a title that you'll see throughout the, the Gospels. It's used over 88 times. It's from Daniel chapter 7 that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. That is literally the leadership of Israel. It's the, the religious leadership would look at him, would consider him, and would reject him. And it goes on to say, and after three days, that he would rise again. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, the terminology is very similar. And he tells the disciples, see, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, there it is again, will be delivered or handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, as we know, that's the Romans. He would be abandoned by his people and in custody be given to the Romans. For what purpose? I'm glad you asked. And they will mock him and spit on him. You think of Isaiah chapter 53. And they will flog him. We think of Psalm 22, and they will kill him. But he says, and after three days, he will rise. The version of Messiah's coming was not what the disciples expected. They expected him to come at that moment in that time, establish a religious kingdom, he would establish a kingdom and he would drive out the Romans. It was difficult for them to hear what the plan was. It was difficult for them to accept what Jesus was telling them. Jesus' words remind us of three things. I want you to listen to this. I want you to actually lean in on this. The first thing that Jesus' words reminded us of is that God's plan is not our plan. God's plan is not my plan. I have a plan. I have a plan, but God's plan is not my plan. And if there's anything that I do as I, with, as I wrestle with this reality is that over time I will surrender and I will yield to his plan. God's plan is not our plan. Secondly, Jesus' words remind us of the following, that suffering is carefully woven into the Christian life. That suffering is a part of our life. Jesus would say in one place, I can't remember. Anyways, suffering is carefully woven into Christian life, yet God gives us his strength in the suffering. And then thirdly, there is life on the other side of the cross. There is life on the other side of trouble. There's life on the other side of suffering. That when you trust in the Lord, it leads to life, not death. It leads to life, not death. The cross marks Jesus, God's redemption of all things that were lost in the fall. The cross ushers us back to Eden as far as our relationship with God. That which was lost in Eden is given back to us now. We walk with God in the cool of the day. The cross frustrates the plan of the evil one. Satan's plan is frustrated 
by the cross of Christ. And then lastly, through Christ's unimaginable suffering, God heals us from our sin. He heals us from its power. The power of sin is broken in our lives, and it rescues us from the penalty of sin. Jesus bore our sin on the cross. And by his, our trusting in him, that power and that penalty is broken. Once again, we see tonight Peter's, the Apostle Peter's propensity to speak his mind, which is front, presented as being front and center. That's what I love about the Bible. Even its heroes are, are revealed to us in their weakness. Personally, I'm thankful for Peter. He's that individual that, that, that says what everybody else is thinking. It's as though, you know, the disciples are listening to this and they're thinking, they're thinking, they're thinking, and Peter stands up and he, he, he says specifically what they're thinking. It's as though he pays the bill for everybody. He picks up the tab, pays the tax. Sometimes, I'm not going to say where, but sometimes there's a new employee and you're sitting in a meeting and the supervisor is talking and asks a question, and everybody in the room knows he asks a question, but nobody's going to answer. And then you see the new employee starts wiggling back and forth. And you know it's going to happen. And you get your popcorn, <laughs> and, you go, and you don't make eye contact with the supervisor. You look at your shoes, but you go, oh, this is going to be good. This is going to be good. And bless the heart of that new employee, he gets up and he tells the, the, the supervisor what's on his mind as though that's what the supervisor wanted. And you just enjoy the opportunity of watching him be introduced to a new stage of humility. Peter says what everybody else is thinking. I see you guys smiling. You must have had that experience before. I mean, when you're going through life, right, you got to grab for all the gusto. Speak up, buddy. Go, yeah, go ahead. Speak up. Can I kick him underneath the table? Go for it, homeboy. You got it. I want you to think about this. Jesus is being loving. If you look at verse 32, it says that he said this plainly regarding his, his going to Jerusalem, being handed over to his enemies, dying and being raised again. In verse 32, it says that he said this plainly. Jesus spoke with clarity about the cross. He made every effort to communicate to his friends about the severity of the coming storm. It shouldn't have caught them by surprise, but it did. In the same way that storms catch you and I by surprise. I remember the verse now. You're not impressed, I can tell, but I do remember the verse. In this world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. And what does Jesus say? For I've overcome the world. Yeah. You know, when you're 67, you're going to forget a couple of things like the name of your kids and, and where you live. There's a funniest thing. I live in a condominium complex, so I'm kind of giving an excuse. And, and I remember pulling up, and my mind was somewhere else. I was the end of the day, and I, I pull up and I park. And this thought came into my mind, and my neighbor Mark, I go, oh, Mark got a new car. So I grab my stuff and, you know, I turn off the car and I close the door and all of a sudden I walk around the corner and I go, I'm in front of the wrong condominium. You know, I should have known because of the car, but, you know, but, but anyways, those things happen from time to time. <clears throat> Jesus spoke clearly about the cross to the disciples and he speaks clearly to you tonight about the cross about his suffering, 
about his betrayal, his suffering. It's a historic fact, but it's a historic fact that greatly affects you and I. He also wanted the disciples to know that the storm in time would subside, as he wants you tonight to know. As a matter of fact, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus points us to the, the book of Jonah when he says in Matthew 12, 40, this should be on the screen, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the disciples did not understand what he was talking about because, because his gospel was not their gospel. God's plan was not their plan. And my friends, tonight, we embrace a gospel that writes our eulogy, that speaks to how God will change and transform you and I to the glory of God. Some believe that the story that we read tonight takes place during the final nine months of Jesus' ministry. If that's the truth, much of his teaching is behind him. Much of his, his great teaching that we find in the other Gospels is behind him. Many of his miracles are behind him. And the disciples have been front and center for each and every event. Many times as he delivers people from the power of evil, that's also behind them. And they still don't understand. And I think if we're going to approach the Gospel, we need to admit, regardless of how long we've been in the church, regardless of how much of the Scriptures we know, that we still don't understand what the gospel means, but you will one day. Because as you're sitting here tonight, as you're watching online, you are experiencing the power of the gospel that is not dependent upon you, but is dependent upon God. So let's go ahead and, and look at this. Uh, Jesus gives life, verses 31 through 38. In verses 31 through 33, we have that Jesus gives life, and this life comes with correction or discipline. You know, as, as Jesus deals with Peter here, it's because he loves him. It's because he has pre is preparing him for something greater. Even as we read this tonight, I want you to think about the apostle who would preach on the day of Pentecost. I want you to think about the apostle who would take, be a part of a team that would take the gospel to the world. I want you to think about someone who's, having received correction, became spiritually mature. In verse 31 it says, And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Remember, I said this is the first time we see this. But we will see in the Gospel of Mark two more times. Verse 32, and he said this plainly, clearly, in a way that anyone who was listening with a willing ear could understand. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. The idea is that he repeatedly, repeatedly corrected Jesus. Verse 33 is a very surprising verse when it says, But turning and seeing the disciples, he, Jesus, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, listen, but on the things of man. You are not setting your heart, you are not 
submitting to the plan of God, you are setting your heart on the things of man. And you and I, in time, will have a change of appetite. We will go slowly, step by step, surely we will change our appetite from the things of man to the things of God. It may be gradual, it may be abrupt and quickly, but that those appetites are changing. I've walked with a couple of people through illness from the beginning diagnosis to the end, and I watched their eyes become less focused on this world and more focused on eternity. And I consider that a work of grace. This is where it's important to remember Peter's recent declaration. I'm going to read to you from Matthew 16, a couple of verses. The first verse I'm going to read to you is Matthew 16, verse 16. This is Peter's declaration when Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? And he said, you are the Christ, you are Messiah, the son of the living God. This is a direct uh, declaration as to Jesus' deity. And then Jesus would respond to Peter's confession in verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon the son of Jonah, for flesh and blood mankind has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. Peter, you are blessed. You are graced because the God of the universe has told you something, has revealed something to you, perhaps for the to- from the time that, that, that he had been with Jesus, perhaps from the scriptures being open to him, But regardless, he was open to God revealing something to him. He was sensitive to God. And this interaction is intended to still be fresh in the minds of the gospel's readers. And yet when we look at verse 32 here, it says that Peter took him aside and began to correct or rebuke Jesus. And if you want to wonder wonder what he said, Matthew helps us out again, again, chapter 16. He tells us what Peter said. He tells us that, that Peter came to Jesus and said, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. You're not going to the cross. You're not going to die. If I have anything to do with it, you're not going to suffer. Peter resisted what Jesus said. In essence, Peter is saying that he would not allow Jesus to suffer, that he would do something about it to circumvent the cross, that Peter himself would get involved. He pulls Jesus aside, and in in a somewhat private confrontation, Peter says again and again, this will not happen, this will not happen, this will not happen. You know, as we consider Peter, I want you to seek sincere concern. Emotional love for Jesus. But Peter's protest served as a hindrance to the plan of God. And press pause here. It was a hindrance. It was taking a position of opposition to what God was doing by Jesus declaring that he would go to the cross and die. And I think this would cause us to slow down a little bit 
again with humility and ask God concerning the things in our world and in our life, a process to be sure to allow us, allow our hearts and our minds to be shaped into his will, not ours. He who, he who by divine revelation declared Jesus as deity was now being influenced by evil or by Satan. How? Because he substituted his plan for God's plan. I, I, I think we see the other side of the coin in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus clearly in his humanity expressed his desire, but he also just as quickly submitted to the will of God. And I think you and I can express our desire and pour out our hearts to God, but our posture is always to be not my will, but thy will be done. I want you to hear the same voice that whispered to Jesus in the wilderness after 40 days of of fasting and 40 days of being tempted by the enemy. The enemy said, if you are the, the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. You're hungry. You're hungry. You heard when you were, when you were baptized, the, the heavens open up and say, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. You heard that. If you really are that son, then these many stones here, I want you to use your power to, to change and transform them into bread, into food, so that you can be nursed. And yet we were told initially that Jesus was driven into the wilderness to be tested by the devil, by the Spirit of God. You also remember at that same time in verse 6 of Matthew 4, the enemy says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. That would be for the pinnacle of the temple. For it is written, he quotes Psalm, he will command his angels concerning you, that you dash not your feet. Again, the devil comes to him again this time, quoting scripture, partial scripture. And then lastly in verse 9, the third temptation that is recorded And he, the devil, said to him, all these things I will give to you, what? The kingdoms of the world. Isn't that what you came here for, Jesus, if you're the son of God? Didn't you come to die for the kingdom of the world? Well, they belong to me, and I will give them to you. If you will but one time bow your knee and worship me. And Jesus rebuked the devil and cast him away. The point is, Satan attempts to entice Jesus to circumvent the cross, the will of God, by taking things into his own hands. Warren Wiersbe, you'll see this quote on the screen, said of Peter that one minute Peter was a rock, his declaration of Jesus' deity, and the next moment he was a stumbling block. He went from a rock to a stumbling block. If Peter, if you and I can can see the difficulty, can see the suffering of the cross, it's also important to see the balance of what Jesus said when Jesus said, and after three days rise again. I'm going to rise again. I'm going into the ground for three days, but my friends, I am going to rise again. I am going to defeat the devil, not with an army, not with a political organization, not with my, I'm going to defeat the devil by allowing him to kill me and allowing, allowing the sins of humanity to be, to be placed upon 
on me, but I will rise again. There is no grave that can hold me. I will raise myself up on the third day. And yet Peter could not hear him. The suffering of the cross cannot be divorced from Jesus' resurrection. They go together. As a matter of some theologians, when they think of the gospel, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and then they go all the way over to the ascension, and they say it's all part of the plan. It's all part of securing our salvation. Yet here in verse 33, Peter is corrected. And Jesus does so publicly. I believe that he corrects him publicly because the other disciples would have shared in Peter's position. Jesus wanted to use the moment to inform all of his disciples of God's plan and God's will. Scott Hubbard, again on the screen, another quote. He says, if you want to delight the devil, refuse to deny yourself. If you want to delight the devil, if you want to whisper uh, his message, refuse to deny yourself. And Jesus says in the latter part of verse 33, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So then, Danny, how, how do we set our minds, uh, our, 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 our thought process? How do we set that? on the things of God. The first is to trust God on Good Friday. Trust God on Good Friday, remembering that on Sunday there's a resurrection. Remember that in each and everything that you and I experience, that God is raising us up from the dead. That through through every challenge and, 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 and even in our stumbling, that he's raising us up that he's developing in us a eulogy that will bring him glory and honor. You know, sometimes when we read the Old Testament prophets, I don't know if you're an Old Testament person, and I think about the time that the prophets came, came to, the, to the southern kingdom, to the, the, the tribe, you know, into to Judea, and began to warn the people that if, that if they didn't turn away from their idols, that God would send them into captivity. And the instrument that he would use would be Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And and I want to read to you from Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 10. Because not only did the prophet come and say that if you don't repent, you're going to suffer, but he also promised, he almost also promised that God would bring him back to the land. Let me read this to you again, Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 10. For thus says the Lord, that's what prophets always say, and everything that follows is God's word. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, that is, back to Jerusalem. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you future and a hope. And some of you here tonight need to know that God wants to give you a future and a hope. He wants to bless you. He wants to raise you up. He wants to work his character and his nature into you because he loves you. And on the other side of the cross is a resurrection for you. Danny, you don't know my resume. 
your resume was destroyed at the cross and God gave you his son's righteousness. Listen to me. On the other side of the thing that you think is so bad is a resurrection from the dead. And it is God's desire here tonight to raise you up. Tonight, to raise you up. To give you a platform so that you can point to the cross saying, I embrace the cross because it is through the cross that God gives me life. And God raises me up again. There's life on the other side of the cross. Through Jesus' death, we find eternal life. Another way to say that, through the cross, we have intimacy with God. We have intimacy with God. You know, on Father's Day, I'm, I'm not a big beach guy. I think the beach, beach is great when I'm driving down the five and I look over it, just keep going about 65 miles an hour, 70, okay, sometimes a little faster. I see the beach, shoom, going by. Oh, isn't that beautiful? Can you believe we live here? Can you believe that people come on vacation here? Isn't this wonderful? Shoom, right by it. My daughter called me, she said, Dad, yeah, it's Father's Day. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Did you remember that? Yeah, it's Father's Day, and uh, so you, you got, a, you got a, a couple of options here. I like options. You got, you got a couple of things that we could do here. He goes, the family's, she said, the family's camping down in San Alejo, which is the beach. And uh, you can come down and hang out with us down there. And I said, oh, that sounds exciting. Or, or I can leave the camp and leave the family behind and I'll meet you at a restaurant. Now, whether it's a birthday or Father's Day or Christmas or, or Thanksgiving, those things are great, but that's not what matters to me. The thing I like is just to be with my family. You know, the kids are talking and playing. You know, the Older kids, my children are over here, they're talking, they're laughing. I don't even need to be in the conversation. I just like being in the same room or campsite with them. That's all that I want, is to be with them. And my friends, tonight, through the cross, God has opened the door just to be with you. To be with you. He's not writing your resume. He's writing a eulogy of how he changes and transforms the human heart for all of eternity. Let's go ahead and finish up here. We see, too, that Jesus gives life and that this life comes through the cross in verses 34 through 38. Now he, he, he turns from Peter and he turns from the disciples, and we're introduced to the crowd. And calling the crowd to him, him with his disciples, he said to them, If any would come after me, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. They don't have the benefit of the previous conversation. But what Jesus is describing here in modern church terminology is what we call discipleship. Discipleship simply following Jesus. And whether Jesus called the fisherman or to call the tax collector, when he said, follow me, what he was saying was, you follow me where I lead you and where I go. You have a relationship with me that is so trusting that wherever I lead you, you will go. 
verse 35. Now, in verse 35, 36, 37, and 38, that's pretty cool, one in each one, we're going to read the word for, F-O-R. But you could also take the word for out and put because. Because Jesus is now dealing with the outcome of a cross. He says in verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Remember, remember, God is forming in you his life. When you believe in the gospel, you are giving him your life. He is giving you his life. Verse 36, for or because, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet to forfeit his soul? Verse 37, for because, what can a man give in return for his soul? Verse 38, for because whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed when he comes in his glory, when the glory of his Father with the holy angels. One of the things that's important to see here, and we're, not, we're almost done, we're not going to spend too much time in this, But the word life in verse 35, those who heard it would have understood that it means your identity, who you are, the core of who you are. And that's what the gospel changes. When you come to Jesus, he changes who you are. He changes and transforms who you are. Jesus speaks of saving or rescuing one's life by identifying with him meaning that we lay aside ever, every other means of finding our identity. You know, I worked in construction for a long time. Probably since maybe the age of 17, 18, to my early 30s, and that was my identity. That's what I talked about. As if I were to meet you for the first time, I would say, I'm in construction, I'm a union laborer, I work at this job, I work for this contractor. And everybody would grunt and go, you know, they'd be impressed, maybe. They would think, they would think, well, you have some skills, some ability, you're physically strong. You know, they have these assumptions that they come to. But that's never who Danny Ramos was. That's what Danny Ramos did. And Jesus talks about giving you his identity. I think the tragedy of 2008 was that many men I know lost jobs, and it was more than losing a job. It's as though the job that they have overnight no longer existed. It's, it's not like if they, weigh, if they just rode out the economic storm that they could go back to it. The job wasn't there anymore. And I'm not kidding you when I tell you that it so impacted some men that they never, ever went back to work because it was their identity. A way to make a living, absolutely, but it was who they are. My friends, when Jesus gives you his life through the cross, you will never lose who you are in a job or a position. I could go from doing what I do now and experience some kind of health crisis and never do it again, but my identity is in Christ. That is, who I am is rooted in Jesus Christ 
and the gospel is being formed in me. Peter believed that by saving Jesus from his enemies that he would, in a sense, be coming to the rescue. And ladies, if you don't know that, men come to the rescue. You know, we come to the rescue in my house. I'm taller than my wife. I come to the rescue when she needs that thing on the top shelf. I come to the rescue when I tell her we need to put a new battery in her car, and she turns it, and nothing happens. I come to the rescue when, when I take the trash out. I mean, it used to be a lot more glamorous, my friends, when I was much younger, but this is the best I can do here tonight. We come to the rescue when there's a sound in the house and we jump out of bed in our boxer shorts and we go looking for the intruder. We come to the rescue. Thank goodness there's nobody there. Listen, Peter thinks he's going to rescue Jesus from the cross when the only way Peter will ever be rescued is by Jesus going to the cross. That's the only way you and I are rescued. We're not rescued by going to church. It's a good thing. We're not rescued by praying long prayers. That's a good thing too, but that's not what rescues us. We're not rescued by by doing this or doing that. We are rescued by the one who, through the means of the cross and the resurrection from the dead, has given us a new identity. Man, I can't wait till you get to heaven. Not that I want you to die. I can't wait till you get to heaven and for the first time in your life, you exhale and you're okay with who you are, not because of anything you did, but because of the cross of Christ. Can you imagine to be okay with who you are? Where you're not so concerned about this. And and I know those of us who shop at Costco, you can tell we're not too impressed with what we, with what, but, you know, but, but the titles we hold on to, the, the, the positions or the, the zip codes or the area codes. There was a big deal in Fallbrook. I'm done. I'm done. But there was a big deal in Fallbrook where your, your area code, the area code Part, the first three numbers of your phone number told anybody who would hear it that you were there for a long time. And those newcomers would have a different three digits or three, three numbers to there. And, and all of us that were 728, seven, we were like... But when, there's coming a day when none of that matters. There's coming a day when the color of our skin doesn't matter, our educational achievements doesn't matter. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Whether we live in a gated community or whether we live in a condominium, it it, it won't matter. The things that we measure and compare will be gone like dust in the wind. And we will be whole and complete because the gospel, my friends, has imparted Jesus's character and nature, his identity to us. And for the first time in our experience, we will be whole. It won't be if we're taller, we're short, if we're pretty or we're not so pretty, or if we're super smart or we're not super smart, whether we hit the home run or we struck out. It will be about what he did in our lives. And we will worship him for all of eternity. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. 
If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.